0: THINK HUMANITIES, A PODCAST FOR PEOPLE WHO LOVE HISTORY, PHILOSOPHY, CULTURE, LITERATURE, CIVIC DIALOGUE, AND THE ARTS. THINK HUMANITIES FROM KENTUCKY HUMANITIES, WHERE WE'VE BEEN TELLING KENTUCKY STORIES FOR 45
1: YEARS. HERE IS YOUR HOST, BILL GOODMAN. Former Kentucky Poet Laureate Frank X. Walker is a professor in the Department of English and African American and Africana Studies Program at the University of Kentucky. He's a University of Kentucky graduate and holds an MFA from Spalding University. He is the founding editor of Pluck, the Journal of Afrolachian Arts and Culture. He is a co-founder of the Afrolachian Poets, author of eight collections of poetry including Turn Me Loose, The Unghosting of Medgar Evers, winner of the 2014 NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Poetry. Buffalo Dance, The Journey of York, winner of the Lillian Smith Book Award, as well as two new collections, The Appalachian Sonnets and About Flight, and we're going to talk about a, another collection coming up soon. He's lectured, conducted workshops, and read poetry at over 400 national conferences, arts centers, and universities across the globe. He is the originator of the word Appalachia and is dedicated to deconstructing and forcing a new definition of what it means to be an Appalachian. And it's such an honor to have Frank X. Walker before our Think Humanities microphone. Frank, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been some time since uh, we have visited although our our past go back uh, some time um, it's almost as if um, we've sort of followed each other from one spot to another and it's been a it's been a great uh, journey for for both of us but you uh, have just um, because I know about your past and I know where you're from and I know what you've done and it's almost like You've had this magnificent explosion of of art and talent and genius. It's um, does it feel like that to you? Not at
0: all. In fact, uh, it's it's embarrassing to hear you describe it in that way. Uh, for me, it just feels like I've been busy. You know, I've been. Uh, I always say that I have one speed, uh, and that's go. Uh, and I think that something I started growing up in a house full of other people. I'm one of 11 kids. And, you know, if you were moving too slow, there may not be any chicken left when you got to the dinner table. Uh, And we could never eat together because that would take too many chairs. But uh, as the oldest son, uh, and one responsible for a lot of the younger ones, it just, being responsible and being busy was pretty much the rule in a a house ruled by a mother who was a Pentecostal minister. You know, so uh, the whole... Idle hands were the devil's workshop. Was something that we were always afraid of, and I just never stopped being busy. I, you know, it feels like. Uh, I, I imagine that's what some people describe as retirement, which makes me think I can never retire because I can never not be busy, especially as a writer. I can imagine, you know, death to me means I'm no longer writing, uh, or reading, or thinking about one or the other.
1: You were a, um, as a youngster, you were a scholar and an athlete. Uh, you, you, I've heard you sort of joke about the scholar part, but it, it led you to, uh, to scholarship. But talk a little bit about your, your growing up with that family and, um, and how close you were at times, and then other times maybe not so much.
0: Yeah, we were. Uh, we grew up in the housing projects in Danville, Kentucky, and uh, Danville's one of those Kentucky football towns. You know, so I, I grew up in a community where there was nothing more important than fall Friday night, um, you know, to see these shows like Friday Night Lights, I really understand the passion from, from those families and the parents and the alumni and the town because, you you know, in the absence of a pro team uh, or a college team to cheer for, those high school sports teams, in some cases, are where people peak in life. and. and and if they can get through that, then that's enough. they'll take a factory job and settle down and, and maybe never leave town, never see an ocean, never fly on a plane, uh, never think about anything bigger than what they've already achieved. Uh, I was robbed of that opportunity because I was a, I was bookish as a kid, you know so I was in you know the seventh grade wondering how I could get to the ocean, you know, if I'd ever go into outer space and uh, you know reading about deep undersea exploration and wanting to be there and pirate treasure. So it kind of fed this huge imagination. And I think any kid, you know, I don't know if you, you could ever talk to a, a writer, a committed writer, who won't admit that he or she were in love with books as, as kids. And I think it's just, it just comes as a natural uh, feeling or compliment to this thing with words that, that we have growing up.
1: Did you feel like you had to suppress or uh, keep the the bookish uh, uh, Frank uh, away from the, the public uh, athlete? In
0: high school there was so much suppression going on on my end and oppression from others that uh, people were convinced because I wore glasses, not just glasses, but really thick glasses in high school, in the hallway, in classrooms. Uh, but when I played football or ran track, I wore contact lenses, and they had just been invented, so they were the hard lens and glass and very uncomfortable. Uh, and people thought I had a twin brother. I mean, people would come up to me in the hallway and say, you know, I know you feel really excited about what your brother did on Friday night, you know, or or that thing he did Saturday at the track. I'd, I'd have to say, yeah, it was it was pretty good, was, <laughs> you know, and not even spend time trying to convince them that that was me because when they saw me in the hallway with an armload of books, I didn't have a backpack. I'm just carrying books all the time. I mean, I was the classic bookworm, and there's no way they could see athlete beneath any of that exterior. And I was comforted by that. I was okay with that relationship. It was what my mother wanted anyway, um, and I. Didn't have anybody else to please but her.
1: Did uh, When did the, the, the bookish, uh, when did the, the reading and, and the enthusiasm about words uh, begin to, to mold you into the, the writer that you are today?
0: Well, I think we got a hint of it in high school, but it, w- it was like a, a mirage because I know I was published in high school several times in our school journal, and any conversation about dreaming of a life, writing, was always drowned with cold water immediately. And people would say things like, well, do you know another person who looks like you who's writing? Who's alive? And I would say, no. So well, name another black writer. And I would go, Langston Hughes. And I, could, I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any living example of what I th- thought I could be. And so it was easy to... to stop that dream and pursue something else. Uh, I was a decent student, so I came to UK to study engineering, uh, having majored in math and science in high school. Um, and it wasn't until I wandered into Gurney Norman's class, a fiction class, and found out that you know I could do this thing and was praised for it. Uh, and he gave me all the tools I needed, extra books, uh, tell me where my work fit in and what it was doing and that I didn't know it was doing. And I just wanted more and more. And before I even finished that semester, I changed my major to English so I could just take writing classes and read more. And uh, that at least made me committed to writing. But I I don't know if even then I thought I could actually get there because I I still didn't have a real example of it. But I thought maybe I could take enough classes and be a teacher and just be in this area that I love so much, which is books and words, um, and you know, I don't, it didn't happen overnight. I remember the first time I read poetry uh, at the old uh, alfalfa's Alpha restaurant on limestone at the time, mm-hmm. and they gave me a slice of pie for reading. And I was like, this makes me a professional, you yeah. know? I just got rewarded, I got paid yeah. for reading. Uh, and, I, and I know I, I enjoyed the enthusiasm uh, from my audience after reading, you know, poetry, and I was part of a theater group, so I had a chance to write over a dozen plays and have them performed in the local community and, and tour with the, uh, the company, and that felt good. Uh, but the thing that was lost, there was no financial reward in it, so it still wasn't a real thing. Um, so I also kept developing as a visual artist, you know, trying to find some way to sustain All of that eventually just surrendered, and said, "I I can't eat like this. You know, I love it, but it doesn't feed me or my brand new daughter by then." Uh, So I turned to administration full time, and did that. You know, end up in arts administration for a dozen plus years for uh, everybody else. You know, Martin Luther King Cultural Center at UK, Mm -hmm. uh, Governor's School for the Arts for 11 years. Um, You know, I decided to come back into the real world and, and 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 try art again and try writing again it was with the caveat
1: that if i also taught that i could get both uh, w- weren't you in the first uh, class at spaulding i was the first the po- first mfa class i was the first poet to graduate from spaulding's mfa program And in that in, that in itself is uh, extraordinary uh, that, that i mean that um, so that was about, uh, I'm just going to guess about 15 years ago. I mean, didn't they do, or is it longer than that now? 115 years <laughs> ago. Yeah. The first poet graduate of an MFA program. Who were, who were your instructors? Was, was, Greg Pape there? Greg
0: Pape was uh-huh. my primary instructor and, and Kathleen, uh, Driscoll was already there. Uh-huh. Uh, and we had visiting poets come in, yeah. uh, for a single semester uh-huh. uh Yusef Komanyaka came in, mm. and at the time he was he was like God to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't think he was a real person until he showed up actually in the room, and I had a chance to be invited to to lunch with him and some other administrators and I don't think I said a word the whole time. I just sat there, you know, nervous to make eye contact and kept thinking to myself, Is Yusef Komanyaka across across the, across the mm. table from me <laughs> And he finally spoke to me. Of, and it just kind of opened up something um, that made me real, feel really good about the opportunity of and somehow closer to this dream that I'd, I'd had secretly that you know my, my dream even in high school was to be able to have a career as a writer but having no idea what that meant and since I've learned that that meant well you teach for a living and you write when you have time. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a career of a writer in most cases.
1: And that's what you're doing. That's what I'm doing. And that's what you've been doing for a, a number of years and, and um, always probably seeking, striving for that, those perfect words, uh, uh, Sina uh, Jeter Naslin, the former director of the MFA program used to to call it um, Le Monde Jus, mm. Uh the, the perfect word. Uh, or something like that in the interpretation. But, and you're, you're striving, I, I would say, and most people would say you've already reached that in many, many ways, but I'll bet you won't admit that.
0: Not even close, I, I, I still feel <laughs> like a, like a freshman in a lot of cases, emerging writer even. Uh, in fact, the, as an undergrad at UK, my focus area was fiction. Uh, so I ignore the fact that, you know, my, Eleventh book of poetry is about to come out and remind myself that I'm a failed fiction writer because that novel is still Beating me. It's winning, you know, we haven't been in this wrestling match every summer every winter break I turn, return back to the novel and try to Finish it, you know, and it's it's close uh, But it's not finished. So until that happens, you know, I'm not a successful poet. I'm a failed fiction writer
1: <laughs> Tell me about the new uh, collection
0: Well, the new collection is called Last Will, Last Testament. And uh, last year, uh, my son, a brand new son, have an older son, uh, the newest addition to family was born, and my father passed away. And these events happened three months apart. Um, But in the interim, we knew he was coming, and we knew he was leaving. And one of my worries was, because he was going to be born in Washington, D.C., uh, that they would not meet. At the time, I lived in D.C., uh, and I really wanted them to have a chance to see each other before they, uh, you know, each went where they were going in the world. Um, so I did everything I could to make that happen, and it did happen. Uh, in the meantime, all that worrying and traveling uh, generated at least a necessity to, to write. Through the the pain and the grief and the challenge, and the excitement uh, and anxiousness and worry that comes with both ends of that, this whole life spectrum. And I don't think I was thinking about writing a book at the time. I was just trying to process all this stuff I was feeling. You know, on some days, you know, I would leave the doctor visit having seen the ultrasound and the face of my son, and he's still a month from delivery. And then pick up the phone and find out that uh, my father's declining, and the the mass in his lung has gotten bigger, and it's collapsed now. And you know they now know exactly how many days he has left. Uh, so to feel these tremendous highs and tremendous lows, and sometimes in the span of the same hour, uh, I think needed some kind of outlet, you know, or I would just bust. And for me, that's always been, you know, turn to the page. I think. I used to joke that I write poetry because I can't afford a therapist. Uh, and I know that's really truer than the, than the joke, it sounds like it is, uh, but it, it made me able to process these, these intense emotions. Uh, and it turned into, I think this, I feel stronger and prouder of this book than any book I've ever re- written. Um, I mean, there's so much in it that captures all the important aspects of my life uh, looking backwards, you know, on uh, the last five plus decades. Um, and it's a break also. I've, I've written, you know, five books that deal with history, specific history, yeah. that are, have nothing, have little to do with me. Uh, to return to my own life and to interrogate those same subjects of family and, and identity and place, uh, not free from conflict, of, and to see what that means on the page has been, you know, for me, it's been quite rewarding as a poet.
1: Well, arguably, um, a lot of your work um, might address some of the same themes. I think I'm uh, I'm understanding that the struggle that you were going through. All of us go through that when we have a parent who's ill, and and you're watching them leave you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the birth of uh, of a child after so long. I I would. Um, make the connection there with a grandson who, uh, is now three, but I was with him his first year off and on a lot more than I am now. But, but just to watch that maturation and, and, uh, you, your other books, uh, York, your, your, your wonderful uh, depiction of, of Medgar Evers, uh, death and, and all that you put into that, I, I guess that, that, I mean that was you. That was you emoting on the page, but it was it was it was it was history lesson too. And um, so this is this is sort of a departure. This is this is more what R- more visceral, more real.
0: Absolutely, and and in fact, I don't even think of it as a departure because departure suggests a moving away from. Mm-hmm. I think it's the exact opposite. It's a coming closer because uh, it's forced me to examine everything I've not just believe, but I felt about uh, my own father. You know, we had a, I've had an off and relationship over the years. My parents were divorced when I was early. And so I struggled to build a relationship with him as I got older. And the big challenge was that he was not a verbal man. Uh, I mean, he talked in grunts and, and head nods. And, uh, I mean, he almost, he almost spoke a foreign language and you had to like watch him to interpret what he really meant. Uh, but he didn't use a lot of words. Uh, but he was you know he was a a good man you know i really you know i'm excited about the fact that by the end of his life of uh, i felt like we became pretty good friends but i think we spent so much time apart that father and son was was not an option i already had my own kids uh, by the time we had a chance to move in that direction and i don't know that he was interested he he'd raised kids another set already uh, but we could still you know, we looked at each other, It's like looking in the mirror, except I was almost a foot taller. Uh, but it was a mirror thing, and we did some of the same facial twitches and, and fingers. We had the same large hands. Uh, both loved U.K. sports, you know, fiercely. Uh, loved to laugh, loved to tell stories. And, and so every time we spent any time together by ourselves, it was always very, very rich. Uh, but that was, it was a difficult time to get, you know, growing up of his new family was very guarded of him and you know they seemed to feel that anything he gave to the other kids was something he was taking away from his new set so the whole blended family thing never happened for us it was you know and I write about this how this this unblendedness uh, became kind of a tricky area you know around his leaving and, and passing and even the the funeral and Down to the headstone, you know, things that happened, even, you know, through his last will and testament uh, that proved that that part never got fixed, that we were never a blended family, and how it was either, you know, uh, more tense because of that, you know, the the grief was more difficult because of that tension, added tension. Uh, And, you know, being in, you know, all of us being together in the same hospital room as he's passing and all these other stories are happening simultaneously. It's not, it stopped being just about him leaving and became about, uh, you know, who's in charge, who's entitled, who should be here, who should, and who's first. And it it made it difficult for, you know, a lot of us. Uh, I, I think I'm the lucky one because I had poetry to turn to and I processed a lot of what I felt through that and told those stories and now I read them, I go, you know, wow, you know, we,
1: well you must be very proud you oh, must I am. be i mean uh, may, maybe more so um, I mean anytime I think a writer uh, completes a work and 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 has it ready uh you're exuding happiness but this this must this is different for you this time i can tell
0: well it, it also feels i think because of of where I am in life now i mean I, this is hope'm not setting myself up for disappointment, but this is the most content i've been. Personally and professionally, I've, usually in my life, if one was really working, the other wasn't you know if, if I loved my job, then I was in a horrible relationship. Mm-hmm. If I had a great relationship, I was looking for a job. Mm-hmm. I could never get them both at the yeah. same time so but now it just you know things seem to be in sync sure and uh, and you know I always heard that you know that's how you know that you're committed to your purpose in life if if everything seems to be pushing against you, then you're making the wrong choices but If everything seems to be like being in a river and flowing with the direction of the water, then you're cooperating with why you're on the planet. Uh So I feel like that, you know, I finally figured out why I'm here, you know?
1: (laughs) Well, you're also doing some other new things too. I mean, you've, uh, if I can say rediscovered, you sort of, uh, uh, a lot of people uh, might know that at at one time you were a uh, a starving artist, and you, you did some visual arts, and, and you've sort of returned to that. And, and we'll have a show coming up to to, to show people that, that you, you've you done this and are doing it now.
0: Yeah, I'm very proud of that. I think part of, of I think there was a time I believed I couldn't do them both at the same time. Uh, but I have so much more confidence now uh, that I, I, I keep saying out loud, I'm arting again, I'm arting again. I was an art studio minor as an undergrad at UK of, uh, you know, wood carving, painting, drawing, ink prints. Uh, you know, experimenting, everything. Photography, assemblage. Of, I'm pulling all this stuff out again, and and I've, I think I've created 26, 27 new pieces that'll be on the exhibit at the Carnegie Center through June. Mm-hmm. June. In fact, June 11th is my birthday when the show comes down. Oh, wonderful! Uh, so, yeah. End of April through June, almost three months, uh, for people to come by and see what. The poet looks like on the page. Yeah.
1: So um, the the visual artist, uh, the new book comes out April nineteenth. Also, mm-hmm. um, you're also uh, well. You you're working on your novel. It's always there. It's and always and there. but but your your graphic novel too. Is it is that all part of it, or is that is that the novel, or is there there another novel? Those are two different things. Okay. Uh, yeah. Because this this graphic novel is something new. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Of the traditional novel is. It's, it wouldn't surprise people, it's, it's set in Kentucky, it's about two central figures who are both writers, father and son, uh, that theme just keeps coming up, uh, and they both come to writing in a very different way. The son, uh, who's given away at birth, he and the father don't know each other exists up until um, they reconnect at when he t- one turns 21 years old. The, other, the father's been in prison all this time, um, and he, he turned to writing in prison uh, as a way of therapy. You know, his best friend in prison gets killed and they put him in, in the psych ward. And the thing that kind of brings him back to humanity is the therapist gives him paper to just, just, to ask him to just write stuff down, to make a list. And he starts making these lists. And these lists, you know, every time he makes a list, he gets closer and closer to sanity. And he writes himself back into this same place and gets released, but he can't stop writing. And so he just keeps filling up volumes of, of these th- things of paper that don't have titles. You know, he, he knows so little about poetry. Uh, he's read very little about poetry and creative writing. He just knows that he has to write stuff down. When he writes stuff down, the world makes sense to him. It mm-hmm. feels better. And he's writing some beautiful stuff. His son, of, that he doesn't know is his son yet, you know, comes to a traditional college, of majors in English, changes, goes to journalism, because he needs a real job uh, and journalists make money but writers don't in his experience and he's just trying to find his way in the world. The stuff he's reading is so disconnected from him. He doesn't have a love for what he's writing. He's just writing away from himself. So when they finally meet on the day the father's released from prison, they automatically have conflict. Uh, in debates about writing, about authors, about what's good, what's bad. Uh, and the son knows this is his father because he's reached out to him. Uh, when he turned 21, he was given his father's information by his, biological, his uh, adopted parents. Mm-hmm. And, but he, did, he didn't want to say who he was. He just wanted to find out mm-hmm. this man was decent enough to, to, to get to know. Uh, so he's trying to build something with him, which sounds familiar to me. Uh, and so they spend this time trying to get to know each other. And then at some point, uh, his sisters take over the story. Um, and I think part of my challenge to end the book is that I fall in love with the women in the novel uh, and almost forget about the two men who started it, and I'm trying to find a way back there uh, so that it ends in a more cohesive way. I think that's what all the previous editors who've read it uh, love the story in the book and the voice and all the details and want a much stronger ending, and that's what I've struggled with for probably three years now. And not three years straight, you know, three years of parts of summer and parts of winter break when I have time to write, on, to write fiction. Mm-hmm. Because for me, I can write poetry any time of the year on a plane, in a hotel room. But when I'm working on fiction, I need large blocks of uninterrupted time. Mm-hmm. And I rarely have that.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, is this a where, – where do you find yourself in this moment in time? Is this a place where artists where black artists where black writers are in some ways compelled to write about society and about the world and uh, and about the movements that are going on uh, do, do you feel in a in a do, do you ever have angst about you're not doing enough there when you see somebody um, like a Taishi Coates or um, I just heard of a, a, a marvelous new uh, writer, uh, I had no idea if he was black or white until I saw his picture in the New York Times book review, uh, Mitchell Jackson from Portland. Uh, don't know, You're going to Portland, you, you may run into Mitchell <laughs> Jackson. He has a new uh, book of essays, it's not a memoir, okay. but he's he's writing about some of those things. He was incarcerated and he mm-hmm. Um, then came out and began and he was already writing beforehand and but, but now he's writing about a lot of these issues about violence and about uh, did, where where does Frank X Walker fit in in all of that today?
0: Well I think it's it's not the same uh, commitment that every writer and artist chooses, but I think of myself as an artist activist you know I feel a certain responsibility um, to Help fix things that are broken, um, including society. You know my part in it. Um, you know if you know strong families make strong communities, make strong cities, make strong nations. Uh, so starting at the micro level, um, you know you can eventually see that see that change happen. You know, and I think that I don't force it on my students. You know. Uh, some of them have, have had the privilege to not think about social challenges in the world when they come into the classroom. Uh, but I think it also impacts the stuff they write about. I mean, some of, you know, if they're writing things that don't move anybody, that, uh, that once you hear it, you don't want to hear it again, or it, was, it didn't even register with you, versus something that has some power. The stuff that has power usually is connected to some, some kind of challenge in the world. Uh, you know, present some kind of example of how to survive or get through or get over. Um, I'm more interested in that kind of kind of work. Uh, I think all of my work, you know, if it doesn't uh, easily fall into family, identity, place, or history, mm-hmm. that it clearly uh, falls in social justice as mm-hmm. a category. And,
1: if, if I can ask you, this is on your website, and I, if I can ask you to read this and, and talk about it for a minute. Uh, you uh, wrote it, and uh, it's there for all to see, um, if you'd do that for us. Sure. It says,
0: uh, I have accepted the responsibility of challenging the notion of a homogeneous, all-white literary landscape in this region. As a co-founder of the Afrolatchian Poets and the creator of the word Afrolatcha, I believe it is my responsibility to say as loudly and often as possible that people and artists of color are part of the past and present of the multi-state Appalachian region extending from northern Mississippi to southern New York. As a writer, observer, truth-teller, I choose to focus on social justice issues as well as multiple themes of family, identity, and place. I also accept the dual responsibility of existing as a teaching artist. And making a commitment to identification and development of the next generation of young writers and artists. I think that that's my CV or resume yeah. in a
1: nutshell. Well, it's your mission statement, is it not?
0: I, I think it explains why I'm here. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. What would you add on to that now since you've had this young child and mm-hmm. gone through this last year with your dad and all of that? Is there anything that... Was there another sentence to add on to that? Well,
0: if anything, I would say that those two events—my son's arrival and my father's passing—have uh, has only helped me recommit to the hmm. to being responsible for these things. Because now, you know, not unlike before, when I, you know, I raise young children to adulthood and then release them into the world, you know, for them to then procreate and, and do the same. Um, you know, I just don't. I don't want to leave the leave my son in a world that uh, is unkind, or uncaring, or unwelcoming to him. So anything I can do to prepare him, or if I can impact his environment, I think I have to do. I, mean, I, I accept that responsibility, and it, it motivates me. I think uh, it's like that. You know, where do you get motivation to to ride another twenty miles after you've ridden thirty? Uh, and your body says, you know, rest, stop. You've you've done thirty sit. Uh, I think that comes from it doesn't come from your body. It comes from something that motivates you to do it for some other reason. Uh, and you know, just having him here, I feel like I have more energy. Hmm. Um, you know, not that I feel younger. it's just that there's a a new engine, a new internal drive uh, that has given me another reason to. To do this kind of work, because I've seen it, I've seen it be life changing. I've seen it change classrooms. I've seen whole audiences of people uh, change even a little from just doing a reading, just sharing uh, my words or the the details from a book, uh, the details of history they never knew about. You know these individuals who we all should know in detail because we're connected to this part of the United States, but. Everybody didn't know about York from the Lewis and Clark expedition. Mm -hmm. In fact, most people did not, you know. Some people had heard of Isaac Murphy, but nobody knew his story. Uh, And Mega Evers had almost been forgotten about by Mm -hmm. generations of of people. So knowing that those three books, you know, or four or five books total, have made a difference in a whole lot of lives, reminds me of the power of poetry and, and, and literature. And poetry, you know, to do things that people thought only history could do or literature or, or, or fiction, that, you know, how do you, how does a book of poetry become a supplement in a history class, you know, it, it's never happened before. But this new genre of historical poetry that officially didn't exist. Uh, when I started writing, there was no such thing. Uh, when I wrote the first York book, I didn't know I was writing historical poetry. I knew it was historical. I know it was poetry, but I didn't know it it was going to be part of a category that would grow and grow and grow. And now it's so respected that, you know, it's winning major awards, you know, around the country. Uh, So I feel good about knowing I was on the front end of that, of Mm -hmm. driving that thing. Uh, And that, you know, I probably have more historical poetry collections than anybody in the United States, Uh, and one that most people don't know about that's being made into a feature film. Um, But... It feels good. I mean, it's the kind of thing that says, "Okay, maybe now you can work on the visual art. Mm-hmm. You know, you've you've kind of mm-hmm. cut some timber in that area. How about this other part of the forest?"
1: I'm uh, glad that you seem to be in such a good place in your life. Thank you, and thank you for being here. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities where we've been telling Kentucky's stories for 46 years. The podcast was produced and edited by Morgan Lowe. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.